All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's ask his guidance and direction on our study. Our Father, we are so grateful for your grace in our lives, understanding that there's no burden placed upon us to change, to reform, to somehow meet a starting standard before we can uh, be saved, before we can trust in you, that you provided everything. You provided more than enough, a perfect Savior, a perfect salvation, a perfect plan. And the issue is not for us to change to be saved, but in order to just accept and receive that which has been done for us. Father, as we study this morning, may we be reminded of the goodness and the greatness of your grace and the need for us also, once saved, to continue to press on in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 21. We're continuing our study in this last week of the life of Christ. I've really been impressed as I have been reading through the last part of Matthew and then trying to correlate what's going on in Matthew with what's in the other uh, synoptics, Mark and Luke, as well as much additional material in, in the Gospel of John. I mean, just think about this. We're looking at Matthew, and Matthew gives us a pretty extensive account of the last week. And it started here in chapter 21 and goes through chapter 25 before we start getting into the arrest of Christ. So we have five chapters, most of which is not in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, we have a focus on what Jesus taught his disciples the night before he went to the cross, and we see the focus on what is called the Upper Room Discourse, and that Upper Room Discourse takes us from chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. So that's five more chapters. So that's ten chapters in the Gospels that focus on what is going on in just the last week of our Lord's time on this earth. There is so much there. It is you. You can spend years just studying through these these particular chapters, and each one has has different emphases. And as I read and as I'm studying more in this last part in Matthew, uh, certain things begin to pop out. Certain things become uh, a little more apparent that you don't normally hear taught. Uh, you don't normally hear. Here, you've got to really dig in a lot of different places, and fortunately, uh, the Lord's made some material available to me and aware of in the last four or five months to help me help me prepare for this. 
And so today what I want to do is, without going into the next parable in Matthew uh, 21, I want to focus a little more on the overall structure of what's happening in, in Matthew 21 and 22, and then drill down on something I brought up that's emphasized within this previous parable, which focuses on uh, using the word for uh, regret or sorrow, Uh, Also, we don't have the word repentance, but that's often confused, and then the word for belief. And I was going back through my notes. I've taught here and there bits and pieces of this, but I'd never really developed out uh, a a detailed study on repentance, even though most of what I'm going to say you've heard here or there uh, in the past. What we see in this particular structure is that as Jesus has come uh, come into Jerusalem, with the triumphal entry where his followers are singing to him from Psalm uh, 118, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna to the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, This is a recognition that Jesus is more than just a man, that he is the, the rightful Messiah, the King, entering into Jerusalem. They understand this. Matthew makes it clear by quoting from Zechariah chapter 9 that this is a king who's coming riding on, uh, riding on a donkey. And so that takes place on one particular day. And then Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. And we have this, this in your face confrontation with the religious leadership because all that is going on inside the temple all of the money changing, the uh, selling of, of uh, animals for the sacrifices, whether they're the birds or, or the lambs or, or whatever, all of this is designed to, to help. It, it's a, it, it is a free enterprise gone amok because this whole thing is run by uh, what is essentially an organized criminal effort by the, by the uh, high priesthood. The, the family of Annas, who had been high priest. Now, at this point, uh, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is the high priest. But this was a racket, and they made anybody who had a booth where they uh, exchanged money or sold uh, sacrifices, sacrificial animals, uh, could make uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So it was a money-making scheme. It was not concerned about worshiping God. It was concerned about uh increasing their own personal wealth. Jesus uh, spends a night with probably with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Bethany comes back. And as he approaches verse 18, we saw <clears throat> that next morning he comes in, he sees a fig tree and then he, uh, there's no fruit on the fig tree. So he is cursing the fig tree. And that's just not some arbitrary action by Jesus. It's a it's a training aid, a visual aid. The fig tree in the Old Testament often represented Israel, and this judgment is on. He's depicting this judgment on Israel because their lack of fruitfulness. Now, that's not happening in isolation in this context. If you read to the next parable that we will. Uh, study next week, the second parable in these three that are listed together. Uh, it talks about a vineyard and a man who builds a vineyard and the wine press and the tower 
and he leases it out to tenant farmers, the vine dressers, and when the time comes near, we're told that he might receive its fruit, he doesn't get it. See, there's no fruit on the fig tree. The owner of the land isn't receiving the fruit from the vineyard. It's the same points. The same principles are being made and tied together. What I want you to see here is how these th- these threads run through this. It, it, it extends actually down through chapter 20, 22 and into chapter 23 where we have his, the Jesus' final pronouncement of woes and judgment on the, on, the, on the Pharisees. So all of this is connected. We come along and we look at this so much in these little bits and pieces that, that we don't see how this whole thing played out in a very short amount of time, and we don't necessarily understand all the nuances from the Jewish culture behind behind that. So after Jesus has cursed the, the fig tree, then he goes the rest of the way to the temple, and we're told in verse 23, now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Now, we studied this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the point is that Jesus doesn't really answer the question. What he does is, and all through this section, it's not just the way he handles this, but all through this, these these confrontations, Jesus is doing a major one-up on the Pharisees in terms of rabbinical methodology and and theology and how they would handle things and and so they ask him a question and he returns the question this was typical if you read the missioner talmud this is how they 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 would dialogue they raise a question and then somebody raises a counter question so he raises a counter question which puts them on the spot and he says i'll answer your question if you tell me by what authority um uh, which, if you tell me, I like what, if if you answer my question, then I will tell you by what authority that I do these things. And so he asks him uh, about the baptism of John the Baptist, and that puts him on the spot because if they validate the baptism of John that it's from heaven, then uh, people say, "Well, why didn't you believe him?" That brings out the that key word "believe," as I've emphasized the last couple of weeks. You should circle that in your in your Bible. That's the issue in salvation and the underlying issue in spiritual growth is faith. And so um, they, they don't answer him, and he concludes that in verse 27 by saying, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay? But he doesn't stop there. As we read through the rest of chapter 21 and 22 and into 23, what Jesus is demonstrating in, in, in numerous subtle ways is the basis for his authority and his indictment of their uh, false or fraudulent use of authority. Now, in the context of this, when you compare it to the other uh, synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke, you see the dynamics that are going on as Jesus comes into the temple. Matthew says, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and elders, he just mentions those two groups, uh, confront him. Mark gives us a little more vivid look. He says, Then they came again to the tent, to Jerusalem, that would be Jesus and the disciples, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, so Mark informs us there's a third group with them, the, the, uh, uh, the, the scribes, and it's while he's walking, 
But then Luke puts it all together for us and says that it's as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. So he's walking around inside the massive temple. There's huge crowds gathering around him. He's teaching and he is preaching the gospel. That's the Greek verb evangelizo, which simply means he's proclaiming the good news. So he is, uh, he's giving them good news. He's teaching them about the Messiah. All of this is going on. And the chief priests and the elders and the scribes are now challenging, who is this guy? What gives you the authority to come in here? And what they're basically asking within a rabbinic background is, who ordains you? What school are you from? Um, whose name are you, are you teaching? Because if you were a rabbi and you taught, you would always ascribe what you taught to some other authority. You would say that it was from Rabbi uh, Gamaliel or Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Joseph or, you know, somebody like that. Uh, we, we've slipped. It, it, all religions slip into this kind of emphasis on human authority. You see it in the development of rabbinical theology where everything, nobody studies the Old Testament anymore. You just study what the rabbis, the ancient rabbis said about the Old Testament. If you look at Roman Catholicism, nobody reads the Bible anymore. They read what the early church fathers and later uh, uh, authorities in the church said about it. You read through uh, Thomas Aquinas, you read through uh, others, uh, teachers in the Catholic Church, and, and that's what they're quoting other authorities. They're not really exegeting and expounding the text of Scripture. Nobody knows. Uh, what 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 the scripture says, and so Jesus comes and he's totally different. He is teaching what the scripture says. He's proclaiming the good news of, of the gospel, and it challenges the very authority of of the leaders. So <clears throat> they're not. He he avoids their question. He slips around it, and then he immediately challenges them. He says in verse twenty eight. He says, but what do you think? Now, what's interesting is um, if you were to turn over to Matthew twenty two seventeen, when he's going to be challenged, it's a well-known passage, when the Pharisees uh, uh, set him up and they send some of their disciples and the Herodians to him to ask him about the legitimacy of paying taxes. And they say, well, uh, should, we, uh, should we pay taxes uh, to Caesar, is that legitimate? But if you look at how they structure their question in verse 17, they say to him, tell us, therefore, what do you think? What does Jesus say in Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight? What do you think? This is typical rabbinical back and forth. He is going to talk their language, and he's going to best them at every turn in these next few chapters. And in fact, there's, there's one section of the, uh, uh, of the Talmud that has a recorded debate between uh, two rabbis that almost follows category by category this debate between Jesus and, and the Pharisees. So it's the, the way Matthew writes this is typical for that era. It reflects uh, that this is how uh, debate took place between the, the rabbis himself and that Jesus is using their form and he's turning them. It's, it's like a, a judo uh, con contest. He is using their energy 
and their moves against them to turn everything back on them. It's absolutely, uh, absolutely brilliant. So in the first parable, which we briefly covered last time, Jesus says, what do you think? And he's going to give them this first parable. And in this, let me give you a few uh, points about the parable. First of all, it introduces a man who is the owner of the vineyard. He's the landowner. And this man represents God the Father. And he's got two adult children. Now, when you look at this in the King James, New King James, it says, Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons. doesn't say son in the Greek. It says technon. Now, this probably emphasizes two things. It's a, it, it's a more intimate term for his sons, but it avoids using the Greek term huios, which is the term translated son in son of God, because Jesus is going to tell this parable, and then he's going to go into the next parable, and the, and the climax of the second parable is when the landowner sends his son, his huios, so that it's there's no mistake when Jesus uses huios there for the first time, because he doesn't use it in the first parable, it focuses on his own claim to be the son, so that it, there's no mistake who he is comparing that son, uh, the son in the second parable to, that he's speaking of himself. So in the for this... Um, first parable, he just uses uh, the term two, uh, two children. And then he talks about the first one and the second one. And so that, that uh, focuses. The, the, the emphasis there, as I pointed out last time, isn't on the identity of the two other than they represent the, those who came to, who were sinners and then trusted in God and the promise of the Messiah and those who didn't. That's the, uh, that's the final part. The first son is told to go to the vineyard and work, says, I'm not going to do it. But then he does. That pictures the, the, the tax collectors, the sinners, who are, are initially rebellious against God, and then they are going to do what God says to do, and that is, we'll see, is to believe in him. They believed in the message of John the Baptist. And the second son who says, I'll do it, but then who doesn't do it, he's a picture of the religious leaders. There's this external lip service being given to obedience, but there's no heart reality. There's no true faith or belief. And so when we look at these two passages, in verse 29, it describes the first son who says initially, I will not, but then the text says he regretted it and went. Now, this is what I'm focusing on this morning, is understanding these words that we translate as remorse, as we translate as regret, and which we confuse often with the concept of repent. So here you have uh, the person who says, I'm not going to do it, after it, he regrets, and the word there is metamelami, which is a, an emotional term. It emphasizes just emotional remorse. But in this case, the emotional remorse does result in a change of behavior. And so metamelami, uh, while it's different from metanoeo, can be part of the process of turning to God in obedience. We come to the 
end of that section, which I covered last time. And Jesus confronts them and says, which of the two did the will of the Father? See, he's asking them to make the decision. He's not going to hit them with the conclusion. It's very subtle. He says, so you make the decision. Which one really obeyed the Father? And they're forced to admit that the first one did. See, they're indicting themselves. That's how, and Jesus does the same thing in the second parable, uses that same technique. He gives the story, and then he says, so what should happen to uh, to these rebellious, wicked uh, tenant farmers? And then they have to announce a judgment, which is the judgment that will come upon them. So Jesus says to them, after they say the first, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom before you. And the implication here is that he's talking about uh, salvation here because they haven't believed, whereas the tax collectors and the sinners believe. That's what comes out in verse 32 when you when Jesus said, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe. That's the core idea. They did not believe. They are not believers. That, that indicates that we're talking about eternal destiny here. But the tax collectors and harlots believed him. In contrast, they believed John the Baptist, and so they are justified, they are saved. And then he said, and when you saw it, you had a second chance, and now I'm really giving you another chance, said, when you saw it, you did not afterward relent, bad translation, it's metamelamai again, that helps us connect it back to what he said about the first, the first son. He said, you did not regret and believe him. So the point that I want to raise here is that here we have the use of this word metamelamai, which is primarily an emotional term for feeling sorry or having remorse. And often we think that just being sorry for something or having remorse, well, that doesn't cut any ice with God, and that's true. But that doesn't mean it can't be used by God. And so I want to take uh, this morning to look at what the Bible teaches regarding the doctrine of repentance and remorse. The doctrine of repentance and remorse. As we get into this, there are some questions that we should focus on. Is repentance the same as regret and sorrow? Are they the same thing? Sometimes those words are used interchangeably by people. Another question is, is sorrow necessary to repent? In other words, is it necessary to feel sorry for your sins or to be sorry you rejected Jesus? Is there, is there a, a, a role, is there a necessary role of emotional remorse in order to be saved? Third question is, does sorrow or remorse necessarily lead to repentance? Now, sometimes it does, but I'm asking the question, is it necessary? Do you always have to? Because there, there are preachers and there are teachers, evangelists who say, you have to feel sorry for your sin. You have to repent or turn from your sin. You have to have remorse for your sin or you can't be saved. And then, last question is, is it important to teach repentance? 
Is it important to teach repentance? I, I, that may be a question for some people because, as I, I pointed out many times in the Gospel of John, which was written to tell people how to, how to be saved, that it never uses the word repent. Over 86 times it uses the word for faith, to believe, but it never uses a verb or noun for repentance. So it would appear, just on the basis of the evidence from the Gospel of John, that repentance isn't necessary or uh, part of, the, uh, of, of getting saved. So we need to address that. Let me go to a couple of scriptures, first of all. In Luke 24, 46, and 47, Jesus is speaking to the disciples before his ascension, and he says to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying it's necessary for repentance to be preached in his name to all nations. What does he mean by that? Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So on the basis of those two passages, it looks like repentance is not just some secondary doctrine that shouldn't be addressed, but is one that should be taught and and proclaimed. We have to understand it, though. In his systematic theology, Lewis Ferry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, stated the following, therefore it is as dogmatically stated as language can declare that repentance is essential to salvation and that none could be saved apart from repentance. What does he mean by that? He's just saying the conclusion from the previous passages. So we have to understand what the Scripture says, what the Scripture teaches. And this leads to the first point, the problem of definition. Whenever you get in a conversation with anybody, it's always important to define the terms. And we run into this. I've run into it many times when I've gone over to Kiev and taught over there. I know Jim Myers has addressed it. You may have may have uh, heard him. But when you look in a Russian synodal text, this standard Bible over there, uh, it will often translate faith with the word remorse or repent you talk to you talk to ukrainians uh christians they say are you saved yes i repented they mean that they went got in front of the church repented of their sin and that's how they understand their 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 salvation when you look at how the word metamelami is translated into the russian language it's a russian word that means to have remorse or to be sorry uh, so they get very confused, and and the Baptist churches over in Russia are not like Baptist churches here. They're, they're very works-oriented. They don't believe in eternal security, things like that. And so this becomes a point of great confusion where you have to define the terms. But it, it, what may surprise you is, and you look at an English dictionary on the word repent, it has it has the same meaning in English. The Oxford English Dictionary states that Repentance, or the verb repent, means to feel or express sincere regret or remorse. 
means to feel regret or remorse about something. Now, if we look at the Bible and we're just studying our English text and we take that meaning and apply that to what we read in the English, then we're going to come out with the same idea that the that the Russians and Ukrainians have, and that is that there has to be this this emotional element or we're not saved. And that's what uh, expressing regret or remorse means. Now, in the Webster's Collegiate Dictionary in the 11th edition, it gives as the first definition to turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life. So now, if we're, again, if we're reading in the English Bible and we read that, that, that Jesus says that, that we, have to, uh, we have to teach repentance, then it appears that what we have to teach is for people to turn from sin and dedicate themselves uh, to a new life. And that's going to lead to a lot of confusion and seems to contradict a lot of Scripture. The second meaning listed in Webster's Dictionary is that it means to feel regret or contrition or secondly, there to change one's mind. Now that gets closer to the meaning of the Greek term. But we had to go through three, uh, two other statements before we got there. And then it adds uh, at the end to f- cause to feel regret or contrition or to feel sorrow, regret or contrition. So people bring this baggage with them when they read the English word. That's why we have to go back and look at, at what is said in the, in, in, in the Scripture. There's also a lot of confusion among theologians. Chafer, Lewisbury Chafer, defined repentance as a change of mind. Now, when you look at the quote that I put up there, uh, put up there earlier, when he says that repentance is essential to salvation, when you understand repentance to mean change of mind or change of thinking, then he's absolutely correct. And so that, that expresses what he means. We well, have to understand that. Charles Ryrie said that it meant to change one's mind. Uh, numerous others who have done studies of this come to that same conclusion that repentance in the Greek, metanoiao, means to change one mind, one's mind. Another theologian, a guy by the name of William Barclay, who's very popular among a lot of Southern Baptists, said that in his commentaries, writes that, Repentance means to be sorry for or contrite over one's sins so as to change to be or to be penitent. Remember that word penitent. Where does that come from? That is the same Latin root as doing penance, and we'll, I'll get into that in just a minute. Another evangelical scholar by the name of Millard Erickson, uh, <clears throat> theologian, he's written uh, uh, three volumes, Systematic Theology, which has been a textbook at Dallas Seminary for, I don't know, 25, 30 years now. Uh, He's also written a number of of, uh, evangelical dictionaries. He says that repentance is godly sorrow for one sin in connection with a resolution to turn from it. So repentance means to turn from sin, but you have to have something called godly sorrow. Well, that's a biblical term, but what does that mean? Louis Burkhoff, who's a Reformed theologian, we had, when I was a student at Dallas, we had to read Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, five-point Calvinist, says that repentance is the, quote, change wrought in the conscious life of the sinner by which he turns away from sin. See, what you hear from a lot of these guys is the object of repentance is sin. You turn from sin. You turn away from sin. 
but that that's not the uh, the word repent is a word that often most of the time doesn't have an object with it in in, in the scripture that's like um if i were to use the example uh, of the term a dozen what's the first thing that comes in your mind if i say a dozen okay now a dozen doesn't mean a dozen eggs doesn't mean a dozen donuts it just means 12 but we often associate it with a certain object. But the word itself doesn't imply any specific object. And that's the same thing that's true with repent. It doesn't necessarily imply any specific object. It just means a change of mind. You have to look at the context to see what's, what you're changing your mind about and what you're changing your mind for. And so you, we have, but we have so many people who've heard all this erroneous stuff that they just read it into the word uh, whenever they, uh, whenever they see it, and the result is that there is a tremendous amount of of, uh, of confusion about what the scripture says. I mentioned the word uh, being penitent a minute ago. The idea of penance came into uh, theology, came into Christianity as a result of a poor translation by Jerome. Jerome did a pretty massive job of translating uh, the Bible into uh, uh, Greek and Hebrew, into Latin, in the old Latin Vulgate. But he translated the word repent uh, by the Latin phrase meaning doing acts of penance. That emphasizes works. And unfortunately, when the Englishman John Wycliffe in the 14th century translated it into English, translated the Latin into English because he didn't know the original languages, he did the same thing. He translated uh, repentant, repentance into uh, as doing penance. So that means somehow making up for your sin, doing some sort of uh, works for salvation. Now, the second point I want to make clear is that Scripture says that there's only one condition for salvation, and that's faith alone. Genesis 15, 6, talking about Abraham, said, Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, accounted or imputed it to him for righteousness. It's not what Abraham did, it's what Abraham believed. It wasn't faith plus anything. We get into the New Testament. We get into passages like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed and repented. Now, it doesn't say repent and believe or believe and repent. Repent's not even there. It's never mentioned in the Gospel of John. Whosoever believes, that's all that we should have there. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then two verses later, uh, we read, He who believes in him is not condemned. There's no mention of repentance, sorrow, um, anything like that, remorse. None of that is there. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What's the condition? To be saved through faith. No mention of, of repentance. In fact, if you look at the, the epistle to the Romans, in Romans chapters 1 through 4, Paul gives the most detailed explanation of the mechanics of salvation. And again, he goes back to Genesis fifteen six. It's by faith alone. He only mentions repentance once in, in the word repent once in uh, 
the second chapter, and there it is almost a synonym for faith. And that is an important thing to remember. In a number of passages in the New Testament, you don't have faith mentioned, you have repent mentioned. In other passages, it's clear it's faith. The cons- if we're going to see how repent fits in belief, it is the change of mind from not believing something to believing something. It is not something that's in addition to faith. It is something that is part of shifting from unbelief to belief. Now, there are two words that are often confused in everyday language. The idea of translating metamelami, repent, as sorrow is part of it. The first word is a word that we've seen in the, in the passage in this parable that we've been studying in Matthew 21. That's the word metamelami. It's translated there as regret and translated as, as, um, as relent. But it has the idea of, it's an emotional word. It's not a synonym for metanoeo. It means to be sorry, to regret something, to have remorse, to change one's mind, and it usually focuses on the emotional element. In contrast to that, we have the second word, metanoia, that's the noun, meaning repentance. Meta is a prepositional prefix that means after. And then noia is the word from noose for mind, so it literally means an afterthought, to think again, or literally to, to change your mind. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is where we see a, a very important passage dealing with both of these words, and you have to understand the difference and the interplay of these two words in order to uh, really grasp what is being said in this, in this particular chapter. Now, just to give you a little context, 2 Corinthians we normally think of as Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is his first one. Actually, I think 1 Corinthians is his second one, and 2 Corinthians is his fourth one. Uh, There are a lot of scholars who think that. It's obvious from some of the things Paul says that he's had other correspondence with the Corinthian believers. And in part of this, he really, in the first one, he really has to ream them out. He has to rebuke them uh, for their uh, licentious attitude and for their lax attitude towards towards sin in the congregation. Not just sort of what I'd call everyday sin, but the sin that was so well known and so perverse that it shocked even the unbelievers in Corinth that they would put up with it. And they allowed this to go on. So Paul had to correct them. And there was obviously another uh, epistle in there that dealt with that. And so Paul's probably alluding to that uh, in in this uh, seventh chapter, he's writing to them as believers. They are, they've all. It's clear he's writing to the saints in Corinth in the first epistle, the second epistle. He's writing to those who've already trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. So the issues here have to do with spiritual growth and the spiritual life, not not getting saved. So what he says in verse one is therefore having these promises. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the point that he's making here has to do with spiritual cleansing. 
It is recovering from carnality, recovering from sin. And he uses the phrase, uh, cleanse ourselves, katharizo. It's the same verb that's used in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's cleansing from sin after salvation. The term filthiness of the flesh and spirit is just a word that is used for, um, for corruption. It's a word that's used for sin. It's a, it's a, it's a figure of speech that's used several times uh, in, in the Bible to refer to that that defiles a person spiritually. So we have to be cleansed from that for what purpose? That's that final uh, prep, uh, participial phrase here, perfecting holiness. And the Greek word there for perfecting is the word that's on the screen, epiteleo, which is a familiar form of the word verb teleo, which means to mature, to not perfect in the sense of flawlessness, but to bring to completion, to bring to, uh, to, to, bring to um, maturity or completeness. And so that's what Paul's talking about, is maturing in our holiness or our sanctification. Now we'll skip down to verse 8. I want to read these verses to you. Paul says, For even if I made you sorry... With my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Notice these words, sorrow and regret, and how they run through these verses. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. What's a godly manner? How is God sorrowful? I don't know that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, and all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So obviously... In this process of their change, sorrow and remorse was part of what happens. Paul isn't saying it's necessary, but that's true for all of us. There are things that we've done, and we've committed that sin 15,932 times, and we just can't quite gin up the uh, shock and the sorrow that we had maybe when we were younger and we first committed that sin. But on the other hand, uh, it's not necessary. There are times when we do things and we realize its spiritual significance and there is an emotional response. What we need to determine is what's the essence of that response. So in this, I've just highlighted these phrases. I made you sorry. I did not regret it, though I did regret it. See, Paul is saying, I regretted it. I Regret is metamelamai. He has metamelami. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having that regret over something. He says, I perceive that I made you sorry. Later on, he says in the next verse, that sorrow led to repentance. He's not saying the sorrow is necessary to lead to repentance, but that in this case, it did. And he says, then you're made sorrow in a godly manner. We have to discover what this godly manner and godly sorrow is. Um, for, because in verse 10, he says that godly sorrow produced repentance that led to salvation. 
they're already justified, so obviously this salvation is not talking about getting into heaven. It's talking about their spiritual growth, their spiritual life, their deliverance from the corruption, the defilement of sin in their life at that point. And then he goes on to say that that they, they because they sorrowed in a godly manner, it was part of their process in moving from being carnal, out-of-fellowship, rebellious believers to straightening out their life and walking according to the Holy Spirit. Now, let me run through this briefly. He uses this phrase, I made you sorry, forget the underline under regret. I made you sorry, uh, and then at the end he says, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. In other words, he reamed them out. Everybody here has been reamed out by somebody, a parent, a teacher, uh, a drill instructor, uh, an officer, somebody in authority over you, a football coach, and you really felt bad. Everybody's had that experience. So Paul corrected them, and they felt bad about it. They were It made them sorry. That wasn't his purpose, wasn't to make them sorry. His purpose was for them to change. But that often happens in life. We do something wrong, stupid, foolish, bad somebody corrects us and we oh we're embarrassed we feel bad uh, and and that may be part of the reason that we eventually change second word that he uses here is translated regret pretty consistently through the passage and that's the word metamelami he says even if i made you sorry i don't regret it i'm i'm, I'm not remorseful over the fact that that you felt bad he said, though, I did regret it. We've all had that experience, especially if you're parents. You don't regret disciplining your children, giving them a spanking, but you do. You didn't really feel good about it, but it was the right thing to do. Okay, we've had those mixed emotions. That's what Paul's saying. I, I didn't regret it because I needed to do it. It was the right thing to do. I needed to straighten you out, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry only for a little while. Then in verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. That's that same word, lupeo, again. This word is used of Jesus when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is anticipating what's going to happen the next day at the cross, and he's going through this emotional turmoil. This is a deep, deeply emotional word. Uh, Paul goes on to use it. He says, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. What he's saying is, I'm not rejoicing that you were sorrowful, because that's not the end result. I didn't just do it so you'd feel bad. I didn't want you to go run to your safe space. Uh, I'm, I'm rejoicing not that you felt bad, but that your sorrow led somewhere. It led to repentance, a change of mind. It wasn't just that you felt bad, but it led to your change of mind and a change of behavior. And then he says, for you were made sorry in a godly manner. That's his phrase on the right. It is a preposition plus a noun in the Greek. Godly is an adverb. Godly is an adverb modifying the noun sorrow. An adverb and a noun cannot properly grammatically uh, translate a prepositional phrase. This is a poor translation. What Paul is saying is you sorrow according, kata is a preposition, meaning according to the standard of something. You are uh, 
you are you were made sorry because you were made familiar with God's standard. And when you saw your behavior in contrast to God's standard, then uh the result was they they were they had remorse. I would paraphrase it this way for you were made sorry sorry uh, according to the standard of God's character. You were made sorry according to the standard of God's character. God doesn't have a sorrow, but this is a sorrow that's according to God, according to God's character, according to God's standard. And the reason is so that you wouldn't suffer loss in your spiritual life. In verse 10, Paul goes on to say, For godly sorrow, that is, sorrow according to the character of God, produces repentance. There, He doesn't say it always does. He doesn't say it's necessary to. He's saying in some cases, when we are confronted with this is God's standard and this is what we've done, you know, we don't feel so good. That may just go so far as to being remorseful. That happens with a lot of people. They they feel bad about it, but it never leads anywhere. Sometimes we don't feel bad about it. We just say, yeah, you're right, and and then we we change. This is what Paul is saying. He says, for godly sorrow produces change, leading to salvation. That's the end result is spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. It's not to be regretted. In other words, we're not to feel, um, we're not to regret that this happened. Okay, metamelami, that's here, not to be uh, regretted that this happened. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That's not the end result. We can have this sorrow, everybody's that way, but if we just end up feeling sorry and having remorse for sin without it leading to a change of thinking and a change of living in accordance with the Word, then the result is that we're just like the world. It just produces carnal death. We're just trying to impress God by the fact that we feel feel bad. How you feel may impress you, but how you feel doesn't impress God. If you're standing in a in a court before a truly objective judge, how you feel about what you did doesn't matter. The issue is whether you violated the law or not. That's objectivity. So to paraphrase that, Paul is saying, for according to the standard of God's character produces a change of mind leading to salvation or spiritual growth. It's not to be a, ca- not to be a cause of sorrow. Uh, in other words, the, the rebuke isn't just to make you feel bad. But the, sor- the sorrow of the world produces death or carnal death. And then he says in verse 11, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, which means you had remorse according to God's character, which led to a change of mind. And what he goes on to say is the diligence it produced in them. It produced a change. It got them fired up in the right way in their spiritual life. A couple of more points before I wrap up. Fifth point, remorse in and of itself is not bad, but it is not sufficient for anything spiritual. See, a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't feel bad about that. Well, why not? I did something wrong. But it's not necessary. You don't have to feel bad when you confess your sins and say, oh, Lord, I'm just never going to do it again. And God's sitting up there in his omniscience, and he says, 
You've done it 15,792 times, and you're going to do it 20,438 more times. I'm not buying it. Don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. Just admit that you did it, and I'll forgive you and cleanse you. In some cases, remorse leads to change. It's like in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 7, and in Matthew 21, it's part of the process, and it does lead to change. That's what we saw in Matthew 21, 32. But also, observe this, that even repentance, a change of mind, does not necessarily lead to permanent change or even change for a few hours. This is the word Jesus uses in the parable, in the story where, where he's talking to Peter in Luke 17, 3 and 4. He says, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, metanoeo, forgive him. If he has a change of mind, forgive him. But then Jesus says, And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, metanoeo, you shall forgive him. Jesus isn't questioning the, the sincerity of his repentance. That's happened to every one of us. We go through our life and we do commit some sin. We confess it. Fifteen minutes later, we do it again. We know it's wrong. We confess it. It's a genuine repentance. But it's, repentance isn't a one-shot thing that lasts forever. We may repent of a sin 10 million times in a lifetime, all legitimate. God's going to forgive us every time. But it's, repentance is a change of mind. It's not generating some sort of sorrow. Now, the last point, repentance in the Scripture basically means to have an inward change of mind or change of thinking towards something. Sometimes it's mentioned it's toward God. Sometimes it's toward Christ as Messiah. Sometimes it's toward sin. But nowhere in the Bible are we to change our mind about sin in order to be saved. We change our mind about Jesus in order to be saved, and we trust him as our Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of your grace, that grace does not, uh, is not based upon what we do, it's based upon what Jesus did at the cross. And we are to, in, as we trust in Christ, we are, in fact, changing our mind from not trusting in Jesus to trusting in Jesus. The primary verb in Scripture is that we are to believe. Again and again and again, it is believe. And that is the issue in salvation, to trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, that it would be clear to them that that is the issue. They don't have to make themselves savable. They don't have to turn from their sin. They don't have to uh, feel sorry for their sin. They don't have to do anything in relation to their sin. They just have to trust that Jesus died for their sin. Father, we pray for each of us that we might be challenged to realize that as we go forward in the Christian life, it is filled with repentance, changing our understanding of our, uh, our disobedient life to changing to an obedient life as we take in your word and apply it through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray you challenge us with these things this morning. In Christ's name, amen.